Sponsored by Dove Men Plus Care. Upgrade to Dove Men Advanced Deodorant and Body Wash. Let the confidence last. Game on. Weeknights from 6. On 2FM. And a very good evening from Damien O'Mara. You're very welcome to the Monday edition of Game On. Busy programme to come between now and 7 o'clock. It's Christmas week and the FAI, being the benevolent individuals they are, have presented us with a brand new present of a national manager. Eileen Gleeson confirmed as a new women's international boss uh, earlier this afternoon. We will reflect on that. The Champions League draw, the Premier League weekend and much more in the company of Paul Corrie and Antonio Donoghue in just a couple of minutes' time. Keen Tracy's with us to reflect on the Investec Champions Cup weekend. And as the dust settles on another sporting year, we will hear from uh, some of the winners from the RT Sports Awards uh, over the weekend. Jason Smith, who retired earlier this year, a Paralympic sprinter who was inducted into the RT Sport Hall of Fame, uh, will be on the programme, as will Limerick hurler Barry Nash. All of that to come between now and 7 o'clock. We'd love to hear from you. Our text number is 51552, or you can get us on various social media platforms at GameOn2FM. <laughs> On 2FM. And as mentioned, Paul Curry and Keen Tracy with me in studio. Gentlemen, good evening to you both. Evening, Damien. Hello. Uh, good to talk to you. Uh, Paul, we're going to get stuck into soccer chat in a minute. Uh, Keen, you're recovering from a trek to Exeter over the weekend. And another mixed weekend for the Irish provinces, it's fair to say. Yeah, it has been a, a mixed bag, all right. I suppose best summed up by Munster in um, Exeter yesterday. Whatever about me recovering from the trip, I think it might take Munster um, even longer to to get over the the manner of their defeat, which I'm sure we can get stuck into, Damien. Yeah, um, and it's now entering that strange time of the year where some players will disappear in advance of the um, Six Nations, and it's it's going to be a difficult one to try and it's a balancing act now for the provincial coaches. Yeah, I think like a lot of the players will have their game time mapped out as we see, you know, over all the course of the the, the games, really, particularly the the festive um, interpro derby. So yeah, it will be interesting to see Damien what kind of teams are named on St Stephen's Day, particularly when Leinster come to to Toma Park, because like I said, the IRFU do such a good job of, I suppose, managing the the players' minutes. It is a bit of a juggling act. Yeah. Okay. Much more to come uh, with the lads between now and seven o'clock, as mentioned. Eileen Gleeson confirmed earlier uh, as the new manager of the international women's team. Our soccer correspondent Tony O'Donoghue is with us. Tony, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, I'm um, kind of surprised, to be honest with you, because Eileen Gleeson had dismissed any talk of her becoming the Ireland manager. And uh, in the end, she didn't... Every journalist tried to ask the same question differently in order to try and get through her, her suit of armour, as it were. But she didn't want to talk about it. She said she'd made her, her case clear from the very beginning she didn't want the job she wanted to do uh, her interim role and then return to her job as the director of women's and girls football in Ireland but clearly she did want the job yeah but (laughs) Tony the the thing that struck me is there was a great genuine sense of finality around the press dealings at the end of the the Northern Ireland game so uh, like uh, I think a lot of people wondering has something changed in the interim that has seen Eileen now become the, the leading candidate well, clearly she allowed her, her hat to be thrown into the ring uh, when at the beginning, as I said, she was adamant that, that, that it wasn't. She she felt the job that she was doing, which is, of course, a very important one, um, was of, of, you know, I suppose, bringing together all the different strands of, of football, women's and girls football in this country. She felt that was really important. But of course, you know, you could see by her, I mean, in, in Belfast after the 6-1 victory over Northern Ireland in Windsor Park, she was proud of punch and she said she was so happy to you know t- to be leading these girls and she made the point and I think it's a very important point that 
it wasn't the man, managing Ireland isn't a job for one person as in any team these days it's it's a job for a team of people and she gave great credit to her team Emma Byrne came in and she's very popular among the among the the, the staff obviously and among the uh, among the panel uh, Colin Healy as as coach Richie Fitzgibbon as goalkeeping coach there was a new fitness coach and you know the atmosphere over the six games in the Nations League was excellent and you know that shouldn't be taken for granted because how many countries suffer a World Cup hangover you know it was going to be turbulent going to be perhaps traumatic uh, the end of the Vera Poe era uh, a lot of misgivings it was messy let's be honest it was a messy ending uh, and yet Ireland bounced back from that uh, scored goals for fun changed tactically how they were approaching games and uh, and came out promoted to League A in a canter with two games to spare uh, with everyone with a smile on their face now the, the more difficult tests are to come there's no question about that but uh, Eileen Gleeson proved her smarts and you know if she then allowed her name to be included as well uh, Mark Canham who's the director of football of the FAI he said he spoke with candidates from all around the world now that we qualified for a, a World Cup of course Ireland was a much more visible football nation in a women's sense and he said there was an extensive interview process and uh, Eileen Gleeson was the outstanding candidate. So, yeah, she was hiding in plain sight all along. Uh, the new manager of the Republic of Ireland is the old manager mm. of the Republic of Ireland. And, Paul, in footballing terms, it's almost one of those jobs It's impossible to turn it down if you're brought into a boardroom and offered it. Yeah, I think we spoke about it previously, Damien, whereby when the performances and results were adding up, you started to wonder if Eileen was interviewed and if she was asked to take it on. The more you kind of... St- the more you spend with the squad and the more you you have good performances and results probably the more you want it and I'd say that was the case um, I've said previously I think with that side there's the nucleus of a really good team and there's a lot of experience within it that maybe it doesn't require the same sort of let's say um, you know hand holding that maybe the men's side does with the younger players that we have it's it's maybe just about creating that environment to keeping players happy and if you do that and if you take the handbrake off and let them play you will probably pick up a number of good results and maybe Mark Canham and Jonathan Hill have looked at it and said well if we look at the performance that we had in Nations League of, of course taking into consideration what Tony said that there are stiffer tests come the basis of what she's done and the body of work that she's produced is, is pretty pretty good mm. and Tony hasn't been afraid either to make difficult decisions like it would be very easy to have come in and just said I'm here for the Nations League campaign and, and keep the car between the ditches but dropped important players brought in a brand new generation of youth and like you said put the, the you know the kind of scaffolding in place for a much different style of play she didn't just steady the ship which I suppose was what was needed initially I think she plotted a new course and you know she made some what would be seen as tough decisions difficult decisions uh, when you look at Amber Barrett who's something of a folk hero in Irish women's football in Irish football you know one of the moments in Irish sport will be her goal in Glasgow that got us to the World Cup she scored two against Zambia leading up to the World Cup and you know she's been eased out for footballing reasons I'm not saying her career in a green shirt is over uh, Marissa Shiva who was very important uh, to Vera Powell during the World Cup she was involved in all the all the games in Australia um, you know again just just sort of shifted out gently uh, in came Tyler Toland which was controversial I suppose in itself because uh, it appeared that she had had a, a, an issue with Vera Pau or maybe even her father had an issue with Vera Pau there was a falling out there there was a you know a plea for uh, apologies uh, from Vera Pau to Tyler Toland she just came back into the squad she's a young player as if she hadn't been away and performed really well and then you look at even the, the likes of Jamie Finn who, who didn't make the cut in the end 
that was probably the most controversial decision in terms of Vera Pope picking uh, the squad for the World Cup. She travelled as a as a, 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 a reserve, I guess, but she wasn't really a reserve. She was never going to play. Um, but to manage all those situations uh, e- with ease, it seemed, and then to change tactically the manner in which we approach the game, you know, trying to find a new role for, for Katie McCabe, uh, giving Kira Caruso more support up front, and look how that uh, worked out. I mean, Kira Caruso was scoring goals for fun in this campaign. So she took tough decisions. She wasn't afraid to, to take tough decisions. And I think she, she will have to do that again in the future because, as I say, yeah, it's going to be much more difficult. We've got the European Championships to come. The draw is on the 5th of March. Uh, the tournament itself starts in, in April. Uh, it's on again in July. Playoffs, October, November. Nothing in the September window as such. Um, and that's where this team want to go now. We've qualified for a World Cup. We've never qualified for a European Championships. But, of course, depending on the draw, it will be much more difficult. But you'd hope that you can get the look of the draw as well. Yeah, and Paul, like it is a significant gear change now in terms of what we will face going forward. Yeah, it is. I mean, you, you want to build on the back of the, the World Cup campaign and qualifying for major tournaments. And if we're talking about the progression of this team and the progression of individuals, you need to be qualifying for those tournaments. I think... European competitions are probably a little easier to qualify for than the the World Cup um, so you would have to fancy our chances on the basis of depending on I guess the teams that we draw but the experiences there the players that they've brought in I think Caruso in particular during the Nations League shows that she has got an eye for goal and maybe in previous campaigns you're probably looking at the spread of goals across the squad and maybe we're a bit thin but yeah listen it's it's all about building on, on what has been a really successful 12-24 months there's a lot of pressure with that Damien like there's an expectation now with this side that, that we do qualify for tournaments and that's something that Eileen will have to manage you know if we were to have a poor result or poor, poor performance that's when the pressure starts coming out and people will start to reflect on Nations League and said, okay, yeah, very capable of doing against the lesser nations, but have we got the tactical nous and the setup to then play against teams who are ranked above us? So I think that's where the stiffer te- questions will come further down the line. Um, I was very surprised by the appointment, but I can also understand the fit between Eileen and the squad that we have. Uh, Tony, when we look at it, like the, there's no doubt it was an attractive proposition for managers after the World Cup, and I, I think you know the Liverpool manager Matt Beard was linked with it. Alan Mahon, who's assistant manager at Manchester City, was strongly linked with it um, as well like it's a, it's a crucial job but now nearly as crucial is replacing Eileen in her role as head of women's and girls football because that job you really need somebody who understands the dynamic of grassroots football and pathways that exist on the island yeah, one thing that concerns me, I suppose, is that with the announcement, we'll learn more tomorrow when uh, Eileen will be presented to the media, I guess. Uh, unveiled is the, the term we've been using for new managers recently, isn't it? Uh, she's no statue, Eileen Gleeson. Um, but, yeah, that the role that she will be leaving is an important one. But the, the length of contract, all we've heard so far uh, from the release is that it's for the European Championships. I mean, there's a World Cup uh, to come as well, the, the 10th edition. Uh, the World Cup next is to be held in 2027 uh, we don't know yet where it'll be played whether it'll be USA Mexico Brazil South Africa or, or a European World Cup um, and you know another manager might have insisted that you get at least two campaigns you don't just get one shot uh, you know in famously Brian Kerr really only got one shot yeah. at it and in a reverse Stephen Kenny if you like you'll wonder would uh, Eileen Gleeson you know be making a stick for her own back with how good her results were in the Nations League and now 
if, if she comes up against a tougher opposition, people might say, ah, well, you know, she, she uh, even though she, she managed in Glasgow, she had very little experience outside of the League of Ireland and outside of her, her duties as interim manager. Um, so, you know, ready-made sticks already. But, you know, that's something I did say to her in the past. She, I thought that she was going to leave the new manager with a, a little bit of a legacy, you know, with, with, with a lot to live up to. Because whoever came in was going to come in under the shadow of six wins, scoring goals for fun and revitalising the team. Because don't forget as well, you know, Ellen Dolan has joined. I mentioned Tyler Toland, Aaron McLaughlin, Jesse Stapleton. Okay, Izzy Atkinson was in already. Uh, Caitlin Hayes came in and, and has played every game in the six qualifiers. And, and she's been crucial as well. So a lot has been happening under the surface. Uh, you know, she's, she's floating like a, a swan, but there must have been furious paddling underneath. And yet, you know, it's broader to this. So we can only wish her the very best of luck. And I know it'll be a popular appointment, but yeah, tougher test to come. Listen, no doubt we'll hear from her uh, on the programme tomorrow evening. Tony, for now, thanks so much for being with us. Cheers, guys. It's Tony O'Donoghue, our soccer correspondent with us there. Uh, much more to chat about. Uh, will we start with the Champions League draw or do you want to start with the Premier League weekend? It's Christmas, I'll let you decide. Let's go with the Premier League. Premier League weekend. Um, Virgil van Dijk, was he right in thinking that Manchester United will have left Anfield yesterday cock-a-hoop with a draw? <laughs> He was certainly frustrated and uh, I'd say that sentiment was echoed around the stadium and also through the Liverpool squad. I mean, you can't really expect too much different, can you? Man U got absolutely battered at home by Bournemouth when they tried to come out and play quite expansive and there was gaps everywhere. So there was no chance that they were going to arrive up to Anfield, particularly out Bruno Fernandes, and try play an expansive game and get their wingers nice and wide and leave gaps for Liverpool to play into. So I can understand Van Dijk's frustration, particularly being a centre-half. He's probably spectating for the majority of the game, looking at his team, being frustrated at not being able to break down that Manchester United side and Man U being very content with hanging in for a draw. But at the same time, you probably could have chosen well, it's, a little it's better. It's amazing how the narrative changes. Now Man United, the only team to leave Anfield this year with as much as a point. Well, that's the thing. I mean, if, if Man City or Arsenal went to Anfield and got a point, I mean, they'd be absolutely delighted given the form that they've had at, at home. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's listen, Manchester United are looking for a spark from somewhere. That performance yesterday was okay. I mean, there's probably certain positives you can take from the game. Luke Shaw coming back in. I thought Ferran did well. For somebody who's been out in the cold for such a long period of time, totally defended crosses really well. And there was a little bit of a I think in the midfield at times listen Amrabat McTominay Maynew looked very very stretched particularly Amrabat his legs look as if he can't cover the ground and get a, a, a rounder um, in the faces of the Liverpool players and at the top end of the pitch there's still a lot of questions but there was a basis of you know work rate determination being dogged and difficult to play against that has been lacking from Manchester United in recent weeks that you could potentially build on but you know they're still miles off the top teams in the Premier League but yes, you look at the table and how close, like you know, 28 points from seven games. They're only, if they, like, I know there's all this talk about permutations, they're only five points off fifth, which could earn a Champions League spot or six points off the top four. So crisis, what crisis are they going to measure <laughs> what teams they've played against over the course of the campaign so far? I think you do. And if you look at the points that they've picked up, to be fair to Ten Hag, they've done quite well against the teams in the bottom half of the table and have picked up the majority of the points from there. If you look at the results when they play in the top teams, whether that be in the Champions League and the Premier League, they are really lacking. And just looking at the top six at the moment, Newcastle have had a lot of injuries to deal with. They also have Champions League football. They're out of that. Tottenham have had a lot of injuries. You would expect that bodies would come back in and you expect their form to pick up. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if there was to be a bit more of a gap to the likes of Manchester United and Chelsea because they're two teams who have really struggled but listen it's something to build on um, you know 
the fact that they've gone to Anfield and picked up a point something to progress the, the confidence of the side but still a huge amount of question marks about how they're set up how they play and yeah. what they do with the ball Arsenal ground out a win um, Aston Villa continued what's been a great run of form for them a lot of focus on Manchester City 2-0 up in a situation where other teams would have just killed the game they stick with the philosophy of we're going to play beautiful football and they got mm. caught out yeah they did and it was very unlike Manchester City you know if, if you look historically at games that maybe they've drawn at home they've potentially gone behind or they've had a man sent off and they've been chasing the game this is a situation when they're in cruise control and the difference that I see Damien from say last year to this year is, is not too much in the performance it's just in the ability to put the game to bed like they created so many chances and to be fair to Dean Henderson he had quite a good game but there was instances in that game where they could have gone three they could have gone four and they'll up and that has been consistent with performances in recent weeks where they've dropped points and teams gained confidence from that um, and Crystal Palace hung in there long enough that while it was 2-0 you know they worked a, a good goal to, to guess uh, one um, or one back from Atessa and then in the last couple of moments firstly I don't know what Bernardo Silva is doing because he's overplaying with the ball which is so unlike him and then the decision from Phil Foden to just take a swipe at Matessa I'm sure Guardiola was livid and you know from such a comfortable position end up throwing two points away and that has been the trend in the last couple of weeks they're conceding more goals than they usually do and they're giving teams chances but in my eyes anyway Damien they're still playing quite well but are they going to win are they going to blitz us with 21 victories between now and season's end and rally and finish so strong as they normally do you wouldn't be surprised I mean a lot of that has probably got to do with the, the juggling in the squad they're in Saudi Arabia this week you would imagine they're going to go deep in the Champions League Um you could of course see them putting a run like they typically do after Christmas where they go 10-12 games on the bounce maybe De Bruyne comes back into the team Haaland gets back fully fit and they blitz a load of, load of teams and they kind of get themselves up to the top end of the league but I, I think Arsenal have improved I really do I think Liverpool have improved so I think it might be a little stiffer this year than maybe last um, You look at the other results like Everton continuing what's been like quite the revival towards the tail like a big win for Sean Dyche away to Burnley it's incredible isn't it I mean you, you add on the 10 points that they that they don't have and they'd be level with Brighton and if you think of the plot it's that Brighton have had and the investment they've had in that squad um, you know Dyche is probably not getting the plot that he deserves you, what they are is is what you guess or what you see is what you get I should say with Everton they're very well set up they were out a couple of players on the weekend and they changed their system and maybe caught Burnley by surprise a bit but the, the goals um, you know James Tafford in goals for Burnley they've conceded a huge amount of goals from set piece and you could see that Everton identified that and the first one was just hung over his head and um, it, it set Everton up from there but listen they're keeping clean sheets they're getting points and particularly at Goodison they are a very difficult team to play against and if you're an owner of that football club or if you're looking to invest in Everton at the moment mm. you must be so happy that Sean Dice is there because he's that safe set of hands that seems to just keep you in the Premier League um, Chelsea made hard work but got their win against Sheffield United um, Newcastle again like do they you've touched upon it do they deserve praise for now listen we can talk about the millions that they have but the injury list is quite substantial and they're still managing to grind out victories they are and they were a whisker away from going through in the Champions League I, I know the result didn't work out as it may have done but at, at times they were they were going through and all you have to do is look at the players that they have out injured you know Anderson Barnes Murphy Nick Pope Matt Tiger Tonali Trippier Willock Botman <coughs> um, they were out Dan Byrne as well so they've had a huge amount to juggle with 
And the one player, Damien, who's been there throughout all of that is Gumarayish. And he has just grown into that jersey. If you look at how he played on the weekend, he dictated absolutely everything. He was instrumental in two of the goals and just so good from the middle of the park. And it was it was nice to see young Lewis Miley, who's one of those players who's had an opportunity because of all those injuries, come to the fore. 17 years of age, has been fantastic since he's come in, get on the score sheet. And then it was it was relatively straightforward from there. But the game swung completely on Jimenez's daft decision in the first half and, and crazy challenge and that Sam gets sent off um, the weekend I won't say overshadowed but maybe contextualised by events that took place at the Vitality Stadium and the Luton captain Tom Lockyer um, collapsing with a cardiac arrest um, like listen the most important thing is he was responsive he's in hospital Luton have requested privacy and a lack of speculation and say they will provide updates as they can like it's you know it just puts it all into context for you and again mm. you'd, it's great to see sense prevailed for once that there was no pressure put on players from either side to fulfil the fixture yeah absolutely and it was it was scary scary stuff particularly when you consider what happened to Lockyer in the playoff mm. final um, he didn't have a cardiac arrest I don't think on that occasion no he he has a, it's a art, art, uh, arterial fibrillation. Yeah, a r- irregular heartbeat. Irregular heartbeat. Yeah, and this on the weekend, I'm correct in saying, was a cardiac arrest. So yes. it, it would not. Um, it would not look too good for Tom Lockyer. Um, mm. it, it was it brought back memories of Christian Eriksen and Fabrice Mwamba, and they're just awful to see in a football pitch. And, and thank God he is. He seems to be in a in a decent space right now. And you just hope forget you know the football side of things that he just makes a full recovery. But very difficult scenes uh, for Loom, particularly when you take into consideration that only six months ago he went through something similar yeah. and his family went through something similar so um, yeah everybody's thoughts with him yeah that's it and listen at the end of the football it is only football um, Champions League draw today um, it, it's, I, I don't know if it's the time of the year or what it is but it, it seems to have kind of snuck under um, the radar for an awful lot of people um, we look at it uh, Arsenal to face Porto um, Arsenal be happy enough with that with the runner form they're on surely oh it? you'd like to think so um, they were the very impressive in the group stages and they've probably added to the squad whereby they can compete on, on both fronts now maybe whereby they couldn't previously in Porto listen they've they've done well in previous years in the Champions League but I think if you draw a Portuguese side in the round of 16 you're, you're quite happy and it goes to show you when you look at Arsenal and Manchester City the importance of finishing top of your group um, the sides who finish second have, have potentially thrown out a, a couple of more difficult draws but you would certainly fancy both English sides there. I don't know what it is Damien but it feels a little underwhelming but it's <laughs> It's funny, I was chatting to somebody in the office earlier who admittedly works in soccer and I said, geez, Champions League draw today. What? Yeah, you know, I think I'm, maybe it's, it's Christmas week and it just disappears under the writer. Yeah, I think maybe. the other fact as well is that it's the knockout round of the Europa League that goes with it. Like it's not going to be bells and whistles in terms of, and maybe it's the fact as well that we are so subsumed with dealing with English teams that the attraction of Arsenal and Manchester City in the draw alone doesn't garner the headlines. I, I, I took I took a quick look at the draw from last year and the teams that were drawn in the round of sixteen, and I felt like there was. More attractive ties, mm. put it that way. Um, you know, if you look through the list of fixtures, you could probably pick out Inter Milan Atletico. I think is the one that yeah, and maybe Napoli out. Barcelona. Um, yeah. we don't really know what to expect with Barca from D days, but yeah, Inter Atletico Madrid is probably the one. But if you looked through, you would expect Bayern to be. Lazio you would expect PSG to beat Sociedad Madrid to beat Leipzig and Man City to beat Copenhagen so you can all, almost pick out the last eight and if you look across Europe that tends to be where the money is OK we'll leave it there thanks so much for your company it's the last time you and I will chat on the radio before Christmas unless something changes tomorrow night or I get roped in to do something later on in the week so to you and yours 
um, happy Christmas likewise until we meet again on St Stephen's Day or some other day and just do it all over again so absolutely Paul, Paul Curry who's been with us in the studio much more to come on the programme we're going to chat uh, rugby after the break stay with us Game On Rugby and you're very welcome back to the programme we're going to reflect on the Champions Cup weekend and as mentioned Keen Tracy rugby writer with the Irish Independent is with us in the studio we're going to begin with um, Sandy events in Sandy Park yesterday Munster it's nearly fair to say snatching defeat from the jaws of victory beaten 32-24 by Exeter Chiefs and here's the post-match reaction of the Munster head coach Graeme Roundtree to do so many good things to, to come here and get a bonus point uh, try bonus point and then to, to lose control in the last quarter what can I say I'm gutted the players must feel like that I mean have you is there anything you can put your finger on how did, how did that fall apart in the last one uh, we couldn't wrestle control back from them in key moments um, I mean, you look at how many times we got 30 metres from their goal line in the second half you know, it wasn't enough they kicked, they kicked a lot more in the second half um, but some big moments got away from us particularly try, their third try uh, which is just freakish and then the last try there's some strange movements around the rook and the offside line there and Connor gets intercepted and um but that's what it is we're just going to look at our control in the last quarter of the game that's Graham Roundtree with uh, Michael Corcoran as mentioned Keane was uh, in Exeter and it's one of those situations when they got back on the charter to head back to Shannon or Cork wherever it was they were heading to he must be looking at the video wondering how in the name of God are we not leaving here with a victory yeah, he actually said that he was going to try not to look at it um, until they went in tomorrow because I think it was just going to be that upsetting. Um, I had to look back in it myself this morning because, Damien, if you'd seen my report, um, after an hour that had to be ripped up and started again. <laughs> it's the um, journalism, isn't it? Oh, like, I mean, at least I had time to kind of turn it back around. But it was a bizarre game because Munster actually played really really well their attack was so impressive again just like continuing to build on the excellent work that Mike Prendrick has, has done the four tries that they scored were top top quality Jack Crowley was outstanding um, really ran the show well um, it, was, it was a statement performance for the bones of an hour um, like I said like just humming with confidence but they never quite got out of sight um, of Exeter. They were by far the better team, but Exeter at home, they're really nuggety. There's a, there's a reason why Sandy Park is always spoken about as a difficult um, away venue. And I think when Graham Rountree does reflect on it tomorrow, and it will be, I think, an unpleasant uh, review for, for everyone really involved, um, he'll wonder why were Munster so vulnerable after basically each of their scores um, it was quite concerning really I mean they got off to a really good start Calvin Nash scores um, in the corner and then you know Munster allow Exeter back in and they score in their basically their first visit to the 22 and that like that's just too soft yeah. Munster in a, a funny situation in that they probably won the URC ahead of their own plans last mm. season and take nothing away from from them doing it. They was fully, fully deserved. But they're clearly trying to move in well, a new it, style it of play. It creates a false expectation. Yeah, and they're trying to move in a new, more exciting. And like I said, it was outstanding to watch them and so far removed from the type of rugby that we were seeing under Johan van Graan. But I wonder, have they moved so far to that that maybe some of the basics have been forgotten about mm. along the way, the fundamentals that make Munster rugby? But even we, we look at the, the timeline on the match, 19-10 up at halftime, uh, Shane Daly scored 
Spurs a try in the 49th minute. They're leading 24-13 in the 51st minute. Um, Exeter makes six substitutions inside three minutes, which, you know, you can look at it as an act of desperation or is it an act of acknowledging this is done and dusted? Like, are there questions to be asked about Munster's game management and leadership in a situation like that to seize that game with an 11-point lead 11 minutes into the second half and ensure you get over the finish line. Yeah, there's lots in that, um, and I agree with you. I think the lack of leadership was jarring, really. Um, you know, Munster have been missing Peter O'Mahony for the last few weeks, and it's four weeks now since I suppose he shocked everyone with his decision to step down as Munster captain. He hasn't played since, and Munster have really missed him, particularly mm-hmm. over the last two weeks in the Champions Cup. I mean, drawing at home to to Bayon was not part of the plan. A weakened Bayon side, yeah. and then it looked like they'd followed it up with. The, the most ideal response a bonus point win in Exeter only to absolutely collapse and I think when Graham Rountree and the coaches reflect on it I think they'll be really disappointed because okay you, you talk about the contenders to take over as Munster captain Tyg Byrne and Dermot Barron would be seen as the two front runners Jack O'Donoghue for ages was being spoken about as a future Munster captain all three of those guys were on the pitch when things started to go wrong and so was Conor Murray one of the most experienced players mm-hmm. in the country let alone the club so I don't think it's really an excuse. I think Munster could do with a few more of the younger lads who played such an important role in winning the URCs and I think they could do with a few more of them maybe stepping up and shouldering the responsibility as well because O'Mahony clearly leaves a huge void but he's 34 now I mean you can't be expecting a guy like that to be driving the standards and when he's away clearly clearly they're dropping so I think that's an issue they're going to have to look at I think they're going to have to figure out why they're coughing up um, so many leads because like you said Damien they were 24-13 up but that's this has been a trend over the last few weeks. You think back to the last week, they were 14-3 up on Bayon, ended up drawing the game. You think of the Leinster game, they were 10-0 up, they ended up losing the game. You think of the Ulster game, then a few weeks ago, they were 14-3 up after 26 well, minutes and didn't score a point for the, the rest of the game. The second half performances are... Like they're they're dropping like a stone in the second half. And I think an, an issue is, and this is the other point I wanted to make that you raised about Exeter emptying their bench. They got huge impetus from their bench. You got Jack Dunn and Rory O'Loughlin, two two Dubliners, former Leinster players, came off the bench. Jack Dunn was the one who scored the the crucial try. Munster were slow to use their bench because I mean they had two teenagers there. Um, I just don't think they have the strength and depth. They are missing a lot of guys. They it was only when things were starting to go wrong that Roundtree really emptied his bench. Um, from the 70th minute on and at that stage you know you were kind of asking guys who are vastly inexperienced to pull magic out of the hat they're second from bottom in pool C um, you've got four teams out of a six team pool will advance um, but like you look at the fixture list mm. you've Leinster at Thoman Park on St Stephen's Day you've then got Connacht at the sports ground on New Year's Day it's impossible to, to really predict those because we don't know what variations of the provinces are going to turn up then Toulon away Northampton at home like are we, should we talk about Munster being in a perilous position in Europe? They are. Um, I still would expect him to, to get out of the pool. Toulon have actually been really disappointing. Um, they lost at home on the opening week to Exeter with that Henry Slade last kick of the game. Uh, and then they followed it up with a defeat um, in Northampton on Friday night. And I actually watched that game. They weren't very impressive at all. Northampton are probably the surprise package. They're flying it. But, I mean, Toulon is generally a very difficult place to go. But I think Munster would still be capable of winning it. They'll hope by then they'll have the likes of Peter O'Mahony at Dogbo maybe even Jean Klein back because like these are particularly Klein and O'Mahony and Snyman of course like these are big players who they are without but I mean Munster have worked so hard I think to create a no excuses culture and 
I don't think they will look for excuses and it's probably worth mentioning as well I mean the try that you know snatched the losing bonus point from them was very controversial um, Henry Slade's intercept um, there was two retreating players uh, coming back from an offside position which I don't know how the TMO and Matthew Raynal who was also in the way of Conor Murray's pass didn't the, pick up on that was, There were a couple of instances in the game listen the easiest way and the laziest way to fill a programme like this on a Monday evening is let's just talk about the officials but there were a couple of queer decisions in that match Yeah and I, look, to be fair I think Graham Rowntree did well to kind of bite his tongue afterwards because we were asking him about it and look they, they Munster should, the, the bottom line is Munster shouldn't have been in a position where they were and I think they would fully accept that but it was a pretty glaring um, in my mind anyway mm. pen, it should have been a penalty to Munster uh, because like I said the two lazy runners were coming back in, from an offside position back into the defensive line but I mean there were there was a penalty in the first half given against John Hodnett which I thought at the time was very harsh and I watched it back today and it doesn't change my mind at all um, Henry Slay got three points out of that which obviously proved to be crucial three points and yeah. didn't look like a penalty to Listen, me there may be the decisions that go in Munster's favour at Tolman Park and go in other teams' favours when they're at home um, let's move on to, to Belfast Saturday evening an awful lot of pressure and focus on Ulster in light of recent performances and the result against Bath the previous weekend and a lot of fear I think about Racing 92 coming to town locked and loaded but Ulster with a massive win 31 points to 15 their head coaches Dan McFarland some of the stuff was a lot better tonight and we showed that in, in the first half but uh, um, I think the, the fighting spirit that they ask of each other um, that, that, that we need when, when you're, you're playing huge games like that um, was, was really evident Was it stressed how important it was to get a win tonight? No, not really because I think it's, it was more stressed on the performance side of things. Um, the, you know, it, it's obviously important from a confidence point of view that, that, that you do win and obviously you want to win. It's important. Like We don't really need to, to, to state that. It's, it would be stating the obvious and, and we talk about the performance, we talk about the detail in the performance and you know the kinds of things that we're trying to put right and um, you know it's, it's difficult when you're not winning games um, and you feel you're a little bit off where you where you want to be and um, but you've got to believe in what you're doing and you've got to keep working through I Stan McFarlane with Michael Glennon on Saturday evening a massive result for him and a massive result for Ulster in light of a fair bit of heavy scrutiny in recent weeks yeah and I think it was justified um, really I think expectations are high in Ulster for, for good reason they have a good crop of players plenty of homegrown talent there they've brought in a World Cup winner in Stephen Kitsoff um, the coaching staff is very settled so there's no excuses especially when you look at what Munster did um, in the URC last season I think Ulster would be looking at that going you know we want a piece of that as well so you're right Damien it was a massive result pressure relieving but we've been here before with Ulster I mean I thought it was very on brand I have to say for Ulster to pull out a big performance in Europe with a French team coming to town Saturday night um, in Belfast but it's what they do now from here they've lacked consistency between games let alone from game to game so they're going to be playing Connacht obviously at home next up we can get on and talk about Connacht struggles but Ulster need to use this now as a launch pad into their season they can't afford to let another European campaign allow them to slip by and it was a big win Racing sent over all the big guns Sia Khaleesi um, you can see they're in a bit of transition under Stuart Lancaster mm. they're, they're actually doing well in the top 14 but um, you can see they're still trying to figure out how exactly they're trying to play so yeah some big performances Stuart McCloskey you thought was um, excellent Ian Henderson I thought it was nice to see a bit of creativity around their 5 metre taps it's something we see Leinster do 
an awful lot they scored from three of them uh, two of them they actually set up malls which you don't see too often I think Dan McFarlane was saying Ian Henderson was the brains behind that I wouldn't be surprised if Stephen Kitsoff as well played a role in a real South African type move and I really liked the one that John Cooney I don't think I've ever seen it before where he kicked a tap penalty up into the hands of the onrushing Nick Timoney and they scored a try so like it just shows that Ulster do have these kind of tricks in up, up their sleeve but we don't see it enough from them but that is a big statement performance and like Likewise, you mentioned like Cardiff and Racing, two defeats from two games. Uh, Ulster with five points from their opening two games. With Toulouse uh, to come um, to Belfast early in January and Harlequins away like they've enough there to get out of that pool in advance they definitely do I think and this is the point that you were asking about Munster as well the, the Irish promises want to get out of the, the, the pool but they also want to get home advantage we've seen particularly when it comes to knockout stages in Europe how important it is not to mention how financially rewarding Massively, it is yeah. massive so um, they, like the Irish promises Munster as well like they would have gone into that pool hoping to, to top it or at least get home advantage and I think Ulster will be the same obviously Toulouse are flying it bat they're going really well under Johan van Graan but they're, the games they have coming up after Christmas apart from Toulouse they're well capable of beating um, Harlequins but Toulouse who are going to lose Anton Dupont obviously to the Sevens after Christmas as well but unfortunately for Ulster he'll probably still be around by the time they play That's them. the problem isn't it um, <laughs> you look at, at Leinster 37-27 winners against Sale at the RDS like struggled in the first half against a sale outfit that had been heavily criticised for basically sending the second string but mm. then Leinster doing what Leinster do and here they sit with 9 points out of 10 after 2 rounds yeah it's, it sounded like Alex Sanderson the sale head coach anyway had um, had been reading and listening to lots of maybe the the Irish press coverage because he had his players absolutely riled up I saw a couple of them on Twitter even giving out um, but I mean it was bad for the competition they did really well but this is an ongoing problem like, of course it is we, we could be here like we definitely could have had this conversation about mm-hmm. multiple matches particularly involving Leinster last year uh, yeah and look like first of all to give the sale team that played to give them their due credit they were far better than most people would have expected but after winning their opening game I think it was against at home to Stade Francais you would have it would have been brilliant to see you know a fully locked and loaded sale side coming knowing that Leinster were coming into the game on the back of going deep 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 into the well in La Rochelle which I think that played into Leinster's kind of sloppiness it was very hard to back up when you go so far I think um, into your soul almost uh, over in France so there was potentially a chance for Sale to have a big big upset there if they had decided to send over the the big guns but look yeah Leinster made probably hard work of it but it was one of those kind of ugly games really that you just want to get in and get out of and get the, the five points and that's exactly what they did I don't think they'll be overly concerned you can see similarly like I said to about Rassing and Stuart Lancaster you can see Leinster still adapting to you know the new systems that Neen Arbor is implementing and to be fair Sale picked them apart a couple of times which which they'll have to look at as well Just on the competition format and like this is a competition that Irish sport is probably invested in more than other countries would be like there is still a problem with this format where you've 24 teams and we're only going to lose what is it eight of them between mm. now and the, the knockout stages that I think there's such a clamour to revert to the old style pools where rounds the latter stages meant so much and the permutations and the rankings and everything else yeah like even from a supporters uh, point of view I mean it's such a shame that you don't have the, the back to back games because that added so much spice yeah. and rivalry like you think of we'll say Bayon coming to Toma Park last week they brought over a big crowd I was in Galway last week uh, for Bordeaux and Galway they brought like about a thousand people if not more um, and it was just a pity then that the Connacht fans won't get to go back to Bordeaux yeah. the Munster fans won't get, get to go to Bayon similarly for 
La Rochelle they don't get a chance to have another crack at Leinster that was part of what made the magic of the Heineken and, Cup and even those last weekends of thinking we need to do this and see what goes on in that match and the, I, God be with the days the EPCR used to send us out an Excel spreadsheet that would update <laughs> the permutations yeah. made, it made us look like we were geniuses in radio studios because we knew exactly <laughs> what was happening with every try that went in but like Dominic Mackay we had an interview with him on, on one of the weekend sports programs on Radio 1 a couple of weeks ago talking about the compressed season but it needs to go back to the old format yeah, I don't think they're, they know, I think, the criticism that's come at them because every time Dominic Mackay is up for interview, it's always kind of put for them. And I think, you know, in a weird way, the, the English clubs have made a really good start to, to the Champions Cup, particularly last week when Saracens were the only team to have lost. And all of a sudden, even just from reading different things and listening to different English coverage, the Champions Cup was great again, yeah. you know, because they do see the Premiership as a bigger competition, whereas in Ireland, we definitely see the Champions Cup as bigger. But if the English teams are more competitive, Competitive, then I think suddenly people's outside of Ireland's perception will start changing, which yeah. is no harm. To finish, um, Saracens 55-36 winners over Connacht in the early game on Saturday. And again, Connacht left to really lament those championship <coughs> minutes of two soft tries before half-time, one on the second, early in the second half. And at this level, a game has gone from you before you realise it. Yeah, um, I had big fears for Connacht um, going over there. To be fair, they scored, what was it, four or five tries themselves as well. Like Some of their attack was was really good but defensively they've just been really really poor for the last few weeks and it is a concern I think you know we've given kind of Leinster a bit of leeway in terms of Jack Neenarber coming in and implementing new systems I think similarly in Connacht Scott Fardy has come in and I think you know Leinster or sorry Connacht they're kind of caught between two stools in terms of what they were doing last season and this season but I mean they've lost their last four games in a row they've conceded 173 points yeah, in those else. like that's over 40 points um, yeah. an average like that is that's not sustainable um, it doesn't get any easier for them they've got Ulster this week and then they're going to play um, Munster uh, at home which I see today is sold out which is obviously good for the sports ground but Mac Hansen is going to be fit this week they missed him in, in Saracens last weekend but Mac Hansen, you know, coming back isn't going to stem the flow in terms of stopping conceding that many points. So um, they're in a tricky place, Damien. They started the season with three home games um, and three wins. And I think everyone was thinking, wow, they've managed the transition from Andy Friend really well. But I think as the competition has gotten harder, and particularly since they've gone into the Champions Cup, look, they've played two very good teams in Bordeaux and Saracens. But I think it was a bit of a wake-up call in terms of where Connacht actually stand in the grand scheme of things. But I don't think anyone in Connacht was getting ahead of themselves either. It's just the reality of it. Admittedly, like um, I interviewed Owen Farrell at the Champions Cup launch in Tottenham Hotspur Stadium and they don't shy away from the fact that we start every season wanting to win the Premiership mm -hmm. and if we can't win the Premiership, we want to win Europe and if we can win both, even better. So that's the level of team that you're playing against. But anyway, listen, gives us plenty to chat about. I hope you have a few days off now before the Christmas derbies kick in. And I wish. Yeah. <laughs> you know sure, listen, we wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, Keen, thank you so much for your Cheers, time. As Amy. always, Keen Tracy with us from the uh, Irish Independent. Much more to come in the programme. We'll be hearing from Jason Smith and Barry Nash after the break. Stay with us. Enjoy. <laughs> On 2FM. And you're very welcome back to the programme. We are going to reflect next on the RT Sports Awards, which took place uh, here in the TV centre in RTE uh, on Saturday evening. It's always a great night of celebration, and it's one of those unique nights where you get people from various sporting codes uh, in the room on the one night, and you'd never see, you never know who you'd see picking whose brain uh, come the end of the evening. Reese McLennigan, the big winner on the night, named the RT Sports Person of the Year for 2023, but there were plenty of winners. Uh, some of whom we're going to hear from 
uh, now in the programme. We're going to begin with the Hall of Fame inductee for 2023, the Paralympic and World Champion Jason Smith, who retired this year, having never lost a competitive para-athletics event throughout his entire career. As Joanne Cantwell was saying on the TV, 21 significant medals, records, world records, everything else along the way. And a man who, by his own admission, was somewhat surprised when the realisation hit that it was he that Joanne was chatting about. Jason Smith quickly into his running. He's in the lead, showing his class, storming his way to victory, and he's broken the world record again. I did not have a clue until, um, obviously, it was mentioned, because even... My wife mentioned something to me earlier. Are you, do you know if you're getting an award or could it be a Hall of Fame? And I'm nah, you've got to be a lot older to get a Hall of Fame. Um, they're in the Hall of Fame. So, no, I, I honestly had no idea um, until that happened. But obviously a very nice surprise. How comfortable are you with the influence that you've had on a generation of Irish Paralympians and the role you've played in encouraging people to, to look at ability rather than disability I hope I have that's and uh, I mean I I don't know what impact or not it I have had but I I hope I have I, I sincerely hope I have and that's part of the role and the responsibility of being in sport and especially at that top level where you're winning medals and when I do look back where para sport has moved has been massive um, still got steps forward to take but there's there's been other athletes on that journey too who've had a lot of success that that kind of been pushing those those boundaries but um, it, it is probably an area as a country we have led on i think we we certainly have when you look at the success um in the past and obviously the challenge is how do you continue that going forward and that's obviously not always is uh, an easy thing to do but there lies the opportunity as well. Could you have conceived when you started running competitively the success that you would have and you know the, the life that it would give you? Absolutely not. Um, could, couldn't have even you know got close to imagining the opportunities the experiences um, you know I feel very very fortunate but that success came with a price as well like and let's not um, kid ourselves on that is the sacrifices I, I made every choice um, you know those around me will, will know every choice I made I continually you know reflected and based it upon how it would impact my sport my preparation um, and I, I gave it you know, every piece of me, 24-7, whatever those number of years, um, to be there. And, and I was always driven by how could I not only just achieve success, but achieve something that would never be achieved again. And that's how you change the perspective and, and kind of cross those boundaries is to really lead that. Now that you've hung up the spikes, have you given yourself time just to reflect on all that you achieved? And like you have so many junctions that you can look back on in your career as highlights. Is it, is it even possible to pick out what it is for you that you'd repeat if you could? Um, have I stopped and reflected? Yes, but enough? Probably not. Um, I think it's so many years as an athlete, you're looking forward and looking next and trying to find what that what that drive um, really is and what you want to kind of achieve. 
Um, so, yeah, like it's, I think in some ways you're probably, you know, looking back, taking somewhat of a lot of it for granted during it. It's not really till you stop that you can really appreciate, you know, how incredible it was. How important then is it to try and give back and to continue the growth of Paralympic sport and share what experiences you have to help the next generation for Paris and LA and wherever else life will take us in the years to come? I think it's it's extremely important. Um, I sit in a privileged position to be able to do that. And I think with all the success I've had for it to just stop because I've stopped running seems uh, somewhat of a waste. So how that looks, um, what impact, how that fits in, they're all obviously unknowns and questions um, to be answered. But there's certainly... Um, to me, I look not just at myself, but other athletes who have a high level of success is your incredible assets to the sport and, and the sporting system and to not use that, utilize that, um, just to me is, is would be a shame. So I think it's important. Have you found it hard to replace the buzz of competing? Absolutely. And I think, I mean, I was, I was always aware that, and I knew in my mind that I that I would never place it and I think that's kind of the where you've got to come to but it's it's not easy to like in the nine months ago retired I still find some of those pieces a challenge um, that kind of focus that clarity and what I want to achieve and really driving towards it and that real end of performance and you know striving for for those um, goals and targets um, and I don't know, do I try find some of those elements in a different way? And I'm, honestly, I'm still yeah. trying to discover some of those pieces as well. Just to finish, there will be great optimism in advance of Paris and just the depth of talent that's coming through Paralympic sport across so many disciplines. Like it's, you know, for all the success we've had over the last decade, decade and a half, there's so many bright days to come still. I hope so. Um, and then, like, that's what we want. Um, obviously, Paris sport internationally is taking leaps and bounds forward and, and obviously the risk is if you don't continue to do that then you get left behind so yes there is opportunities but sport hangs around for no one and if you don't move with it then you, you pay the price and so let's um, hope that you know we can continue to to build on the success of the past. That's Jason Smith chatting on Saturday as the parties, as you can hear in the background, was kicking off um, after the sports awards. Uh, thank you to him. We promised you Limerick hurler Barry Nash, but time has beaten us. We'll bring you that tomorrow on the program. Bed is on the way after seven o'clock. Jenny after nine. Dan Hegarty later on this evening from John Farrell, who produced Laurel Lee Davies, our broadcast coordinator, and Damien O'Mara. Until we chat again. Good night.